Welcome to the Refined Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Kat Harris. This podcast is designed to hold space for honest conversations. From purity culture to faith, sexuality, relationships, identity, culture, deconstruction, and more. My hope is to look doubt in the face, be curious, seek God, and ask meaningful questions to address any elephant in the room with openness, nuance, and grace. I won't pretend to be an expert and definitely don't have all the answers. And though it may feel easier and more comfortable to exist in the black and white, I invite you to discover God with me in the gray and unexpected spaces. So whoever you are, whatever you do or don't believe, you are welcome here and have a seat at this table. Make sure you're subscribed to the Refined Collective Podcast on iTunes. So each week when a new episode drops, it'll download straight to those devices. And while you're at it, if you feel so inclined, leave us a five-star rating and written review. It would be so helpful to get our message out there. All right, let's go ahead and get to it. Welcome to the Refined Collective Podcast. I am your host, Kat Harris, and a special shout out and thank you to Newsstand Studio at One Rock Center. Thank you so much for producing and sponsoring this episode of the Refined Collective and being such a consistent source of support for what I'm up to over here. So if you want to follow along with what is going on in New York City at Rockefeller Center, follow along on Twitter at Rock Center NYC or on Instagram, my favorite place, at Rockefeller Center. Also, thank you to my Patreon community and Patreon family. Just two days ago, we had our monthly Zoom coaching call for all the Patreon members. So basically what that is, is once a month, I host a Zoom call. Everyone who is on Patreon gets invited to it. And it's just an hour of us connecting, me doing on-the-spot coaching and consulting and just really getting to see each other's faces and do life together in a deeper and sweeter way. So that has quickly become one of my favorite things that we do over on Patreon. I would love to invite you to join the Patreon family. You can go to patreon.com slash The Refined Collective. It's $5 to join. And we'd just love to have you. No one knows what you're looking for in a doctor better than you. And no one's better at giving you the tools to find the perfect doctor than ZocDoc. The people who created ZocDoc identified the problems with healthcare and said, enough. And now booking a great doctor is surprisingly pain-free. ZocDoc is a free app that shows you doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, and are available when you need them. You can read up on local doctors, get verified patient reviews, and see what other real humans had to say about their visit. On their site, you can choose a time slot and whether you want to see the doctor in person or do a video visit. And just like that, you're booked with someone in your network who gets you. I use ZocDoc because it has taken the stress out of my doctor visits. Go to ZocDoc.com slash cat and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then start your research for a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash cat, K-A-T, ZocDoc.com slash cat. Okay, on to this series. This is part three 
in a three-part series of deconstruction. And if you haven't listened to the other two episodes, that's okay. You don't have to listen to them right now, but I would encourage you to go back and listen to part one and part two. So part one is all about what is deconstruction, the history of deconstruction, how do I know when or if I'm experiencing deconstruction and what do I do with that? Episode two, or last week's episode, I moved through the question, can I completely deconstruct my faith and still love Jesus? And also share with you my own experience of sort of the genesis of my faith crisis and deconstruction, which inconveniently really happened when my book launched last year. So the week my very Christian book came out, I was not even sure I was a Christian. So if you're curious about that experience, you can listen to last week's episode. And then the final episode this week is really me diving into... First, just practically, what are the different stages of faith? And this idea that doubt doesn't have to be your enemy, but perhaps, I propose, can be one of your greatest allies in growth. And then I really want to get into the nitty-gritty of, all right, so you're deconstructing your faith. You don't know how long it's going to last. You don't know if you should be going to church right now. Reading the Bible might feel triggering to you. Everyone in your life might think you're just like the struggling backslidden one. But really, what would Jesus do? I think I often forget that when Jesus walked the earth, Jesus really taught us how to be human as opposed to teaching us how to be God. So, If Jesus were in this space, if Jesus were in the deconstruction or really walking with us, like Jesus says Jesus does, what could that experience be like? And then finally, practically, how then shall we live? I really should have looked up what that book was. I I remember reading it and, oh, maybe it was Tozer, A.W. Tozer. Gosh, I wish I had a fact checker like Monica on Dak Shepard's podcast. But the question, okay, so where do we go from here? Okay, I can no longer go on as I was. So how do I move forward? How do I have some semblance of faith? What does this look like? What does it look like? Okay, before we get into what would Jesus do and then how then shall we live, I do want to go into different stages of faith because learning about these different stages has been really empowering and supportive in my own journey. And also, this isn't the only stages of faith diagram that there is. There's a lot. I am sharing with you Brian Zahn's from When Everything is on Fire. Brian McLaren has his own stages of faith in his book, Faith After Doubt, as does Richard Rohr and David Brooks and probably hundreds And hundreds, maybe thousands of people have their own stages of faith. But this by Zond was super helpful for me. So, and when everything is on fire, Zond talks about three different stages of faith that we all go through. And they're all equally as important. I think what can happen is even just thinking about, oh man, I can't believe I wore that in high school. Like how stupid was I to wear those bell-bottom pants, gross, or how dumb was it of me to pluck all my eyebrows really thin and now I'm in my 30s and they can't grow back. We can resent where we used to be 
as opposed to appreciating that was the exact thing we needed for that moment in time. And just because we aren't there anymore doesn't mean that it wasn't a pivotal part of the growth process to ultimately lead us to the growth moment we're in today. So the first stage of phase outlined by Zond is called the literal phase. This is where we take things literally. And this is when we we see parents teaching their children and toddlers very literally. That is an apple. That is a banana. The stove is hot. Don't touch it. The literal phase is the very kind of black and white version of faith. This is where a lot of us were often taught the Bible is literal, the earth was created in a literal six days with a literal 24-hour seventh day of rest, viewing scripture, viewing faith in a very black and white way. This is right. This is wrong. This is how you do it. This is what faith is. This is what sin is. This is what this means. This is what this doesn't mean. And this is how you get your seat at the table. So it's really like rule-based and really gives us sort of that framework and foundation of, okay, this is what it means to be human. This is who God is. And this is how I keep my spot here. Now, again, this is a very important part of the growth process because when we're children and when we're young, we we kind of need to know, like, what are the rules to play the game, right? Like, what are the rules to stay safe? And I need to know that, hey, if I am playing soccer with my friends and the ball gets kicked into the street to stop and look both ways before going into the street so that when I get the ball, I don't get hit by a car. So there's very practical and safe reasons why we have this literal stage of living and faith. But ultimately, we get to stage two of faith and and in our own lives. Often this can happen when we're teenagers, maybe college, maybe in our 20s, we leave home and we start seeing, oh, like there's other ways of living. Oh, I don't have to make my bed every morning when I'm at college because my mom's not making me or I have not thought about it that way. So the stage two of faith as proposed by Zond is called the analytical phase. So this is, if we're talking about even just like the way we're looking at scripture, moving from a completely literal view of scripture to an analytical view of scripture and faith. So what this means is, oh, the Bible is written by dozens of different authors. It's dozens of different books spanned over thousands of years. What was the genre of the book of Psalms? Oh, it's a poetry book. Oh, the Genesis account is a poem or metaphor that was oral tradition for thousands of years before it was written down. That means we're going to read that in a different analytical way than if it were actually literal. Oh, The New Testament is primarily written in Greek and Aramaic and the Old Testament in Hebrew. What does the Greek word mean for love? Let's look at that. Oh, and then it's cross-referenced with these verses. So it's really taking a more personalized and analytical approach to your faith. And I will tell you, I have lived in the literal and analytical space most of my faith. Now, I became a Christian when I was 16 years old, and I probably— moved more over to the analytical space when I became a Bible major at Bible school. And I was fascinated that, oh my gosh, like 
This verse in Ephesians is really referencing this Old Testament verse, or when Jesus said this, he was quoting Isaiah. The fact that I could research things on my own felt super empowering. And also in this analytical stage is when we typically read a ton of other authors and theologians and to learn the quote-unquote right theology. So like the Lewises, the Chestertons, the Nowens, insert whoever is your favorite theologian. And most people, I will say from my research and even just from my own experience, live in this stage one and stage two for a lot of their lives, most of their lives, if not all of their lives. And here's why. It's easier to stay in those phases because we have more certainty, right? Like, so if the Bible is literal, and if we have a set of rules of right and wrongs and black and whites, then we know how to show up to it. There's structure, there's safety in that. We feel a sense of control. And when we are in control, we feel safer. And when it's analytical, then we can figure it out, even if we have questions we don't understand. So in these first two stages, there's so much safety in them because there's less mystery, right? I can figure it all out. I can figure God out. I can figure out how to play the game of life. I can figure out how to keep my seat at the table. But then we get to stage three, which if you grew up literal, analytical stages, like most of us, myself included, the stage three is called mystical, and that can feel completely disorienting. And what I've come to experience is that a lot of deconstruction begins, at least it began for me, as I started stepping into a more mystical space. Now, I always thought mystical was a really scary thing. Like, oh my gosh, that's what those weird woo-woo people do with all the crystals and the yogas and all of that. And it took me a long time to realize like, oh, I've actually like kind of always been that person. So what a mystical stage of faith is, is less about crystals and more about embracing the mystery of God and the mystery of life. Understanding that I am a finite being who has only been here for 36 years, and if God is real and if God is infinite, then as one of the authors in the Old Testament says that the train of His robe fills the temple and we cry our highest praise. Essentially, I can but taste and experience and touch the fringes of the existence of God. And that alone transforms my experience. It's embracing the mystery of the unknown. It's understanding that a finite being can never completely wrap its mind and existence around the infinite. It's saying that I may not know everything, it's saying that, okay, um, maybe the literalism and the analytical side felt safer, but perhaps that control was just an illusion. The mystical stage of faith is starting to embody a full body experience of God, which is all throughout the scriptures. The, the Old and New Testament is full of mysticism. We see this Hebrew word yada throughout the Old Testament. And yada is the word in Genesis 2 where Eve and Adam, quote unquote, know each other for the first time when they have sex. That word is yada. And when God knows us, when God knows humanity in the Old Testament, that same word yada is, is also used. It's this knowing, this deep knowing that goes well beyond the literal, well beyond the analytical, and is this full body immersive knowing. It's like, I know in my body, soul, and spirit 
the goodness of God. I have tasted and seen that God is good. The mystical is an invitation to surrender to the mystery, the bigness, the expansiveness of God and be curious about that. Now, I became a Christian when I was 16 years old at a mega church in 2002. And by mega church, I'm not talking about just any size mega church. I'm talking every weekend, 20,000 plus people attending services. I mean, this was like huge production, theater, plasma screens, lights, camera action. There were more than 2,000 kids in the high school youth group I was a part of. I mean, every moment was completely branded. And I look back at that church, and even I have friends that still go there today, and I have judged them over the years, countless times. How can they still go there? Like this type of church has made me want to barf over over the years since I left it. But recently I paused and was like, no, like, thank God for that church. That's the church that allowed me to encounter God for the first time in my life. That's the youth group that to this day, all my best friends from high school are from that youth group. I don't keep in touch with people from my tennis team or necessarily from my high school. I keep in touch with people from my high school youth group. I'm still on a text thread with my high school Bible study leader and a group of girls that we were all in small group together. So I can judge that church. I can judge that stage of faith, or I can say, wow, thank you, God, for meeting me exactly where I needed to be met in that moment. And thank you, God, that there are churches out there that meet people on different parts of their journey. Because again, we need every stage. The literal is just as important as the analytical, which is just important as the mystical. We need every stage. Often we resent our past as opposed to expressing gratitude that we were met at the exact place where we needed to be met in that moment. But what happens when you're stepping into that third stage is again, it often feels like a complete loss of faith or a total faith crisis, deconstruction, whatever you want to call it. There's all of a sudden all these things that you never saw, but now you see and you can't unsee them. So what do you do with that? What do you do with that when you feel that disorientation? Do you throw the baby out with the bathwater? Do you will yourself to hush those doubts and thus betray yourself so you can move on with the status quo? How then shall we live? Where do we go from here? There's a poem by Rumi that has supported me so much in this season, and it goes like this. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make sense. The breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You must ask for what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are going back and forth across the door sill where the two worlds touch. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. Sometimes I miss the bliss of ignorance. Like, why can't I be the person who just blindly believes? Why do I have to be so bothered by church culture and toxic systems when so many people can just exist within it? It may feel easier at times to go back to sleep. 
to put your doubts to bed without really looking at them because looking at them is hard and confusing and disruptive on so many levels. And to that end, I want to encourage you to stay awake. The path you are on is a worthy path. So how then shall we live? How do I reconstruct when the deconstruction feels endless? Well, the first step to reconstructing my faith has been letting go of the idea that I need to be certain of everything, that I need to have all the answers to my questions, that everything needs to be reconciled, that every I needs to be dotted and T crossed. I think we're taught in our Western culture to have the one-two fix, the three hacks, the five steps. We want to evangelize and give people five steps to become a Christian and for them to come to faith within two days or else we have failed. But what if life is much more of a process and a journey that takes years? What if your reconstruction is a journey that could take a lifetime? Are you willing to be on the process? Are you willing to sit in the tension? Are you willing to sit in the in-between of being completely all in in your faith or completely abandoned? Can you be in the space between? That's the gray space. And I have often found that as where God lives. God meets us in those spaces. Raise your hand if you have ever struggled with anxiety. For the record, my hand is raised very high right now. I've shared very openly how important meditation has been for me in my healing journey with anxiety. Meditation can feel overwhelming, but Abide is an app that makes it easy. Abide is the number one Christian meditation app. I love to start my mornings on my couch with prayer, and Abide has been the perfect addition to my morning routine. All of the audio meditations are also based in scripture, which has been a fun way for me to get back into the Bible in my deconstruction process. Plus, the meditations can be as short as two minutes long, so they're super accessible. Get started now with 25% off a premium subscription by downloading the Abide app at abide.co slash refined. You'll get additional stories and meditations, premium music, soothing sounds, and more. Support this show and get 25% off by going to abide.co slash refined. That's A-B-I-D-E dot C-O slash refined to download the Abide app and get 25% off your premium subscription. We have to let go of certainty, which for me, as a person who lived in the literal and analytical for most of my faith walk has felt very scary. David Brooks in his book, The Second Mountain, talks about American novelist and minister Frederick Buchner and how Buchner viewed faith not as this linear graph of black and white answers and bullet point beliefs, but faith more as a quest. Buchner, he says, came to experience faith as a vague sense that life isn't just a bunch of atoms haphazardly bouncing against one another, but a novel with a plot that leads somewhere. Brooks continues, later in life, Buchner found himself amid young Christians who spoke confidently about God as if they talked to him all the time and he talked back. God told them to pursue this job and not that one and to order this at the restaurant and not that. He was dumbstruck. He wrote that if you say you hear God talking to you every day on every subject, you are either trying to pull the wool over your own eyes or everybody else's. 
Instead, he continues, you should wake up in your bed and ask, can I believe it all again today? Or better yet, ask yourself the question after you've scanned the morning news and seen all the atrocities that get committed. If your answer to that question of belief is yes every single day, then you probably don't know what believing in God really means, Buchner writes. At least five times out of 10, the answer should be no, because the no is as important as the yes, maybe more so. The no is what proves you're human in case you should ever doubt it. And if some morning the answer happens to be really yes, it should be a yes that's choked with confession and tears and great laughter. (laughs) To Buchner, not believing was just as important as believing. Or one of my favorite Christian mystical ladies, Madeline Engel, puts it like this. How do I make more than a fumbling attempt to explain that faith is not legislated, that it is not a small box which works 24 hours a day? If I believe for two minutes every month or so, I am doing well. At some point, I came to believe that the pillar of a stronger sound faith was certainty. Now I'm not so sure. What about Jesus? How does Jesus respond or interact with certainty? Again, I believe Jesus showed us how to be human. And we see in the scriptures, Jesus over and over and over again, honoring the humanity in people. In Mark 9, right after this powerful transfiguration experience, Jesus comes back to town and the disciples and all these townspeople are in an uproar. There's fighting going on. And Jesus is like, guys, um, what is happening? And a man from the crowd reaches out and yells to Jesus, my son is sick. My son has been tormented and traumatized by these demons for years. He's mute. He can't speak. And these demons throw him into the fire. And if you are able, can you heal my son? If you are able, this man, this father is at the very brink of despair. He has gone to the disciples for healing for his son and they couldn't heal him. And so this father is like, man, these guys can't do it. Can you even do it, Jesus? And Jesus is like, if I can heal your son. And the father responds, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus heals his son. Jesus doesn't even really acknowledge that this man has said, I believe, help my unbelief, or like, I kind of believe in you, or maybe I would believe in you if you actually heal my son. Jesus honors where this father is and meets the father in his doubt, in his shaky, cynical-filled, doubt-filled, skeptical-filled experience and heals his son. And then there's the famous Doubting Thomas story. Thomas the skeptic in John 20, 24 through 29. Thomas was one of the disciples. Like Thomas literally saw Jesus before miracles and lived and breathed and was a part of the 12 inner circle disciples who were a part of Jesus's deepest ministries. So how could this guy not believe? Yet he was still a skeptic, which... 
man, if someone who lived and breathed and walked with Jesus and yet still doesn't really believe, that gives me great hope. I'm like, man, if I'm in good company, if I'm doubting and, and then people were still doubting who lived and walked and breathed with Jesus. And it wasn't just Thomas who was the skeptic. Look at Peter. Peter got it really right some days. And then the next day he was doubting and Jesus was like, get behind me, Satan. Yet with Thomas, here we are in John 20, Jesus has been crucified. The resurrection has happened. A lot of people have already seen Jesus. And Thomas says, I will never believe that Jesus is raised from the dead unless I see him with my own eyes and touch the holes in his hand. And then the story goes that they are in a room and Jesus appears to them in the room, doesn't even open the door and says, Thomas, touch my scars. And Thomas gets up and with his own eyes and his own hands gets to see, touch, feel Jesus. Jesus wasn't angry. Jesus didn't shame Thomas's skepticism. Jesus honored uncertainty. Jesus honored his doubt and understood it's a part of the process of being human. You see, how would Jesus show up to uncertainty and doubt and deconstruction? I think totally unbothered. You see, it may threaten you, your friends, your family, your church, your pastors, but it really doesn't seem to bother Jesus. Oswald Chambers has this devotional, my utmost for his highest, that I always judged people for reading because it just seems so lame. And one of the devotions is called Gracious Uncertainty, and it has been a firm friend for me over the years. And in it, Chambers says, our natural inclination is to be so precise, trying always to forecast accurately what will happen next, that we look upon uncertainty as a bad thing. We think that we must reach some predetermined goal, but that is not the nature of the spiritual life. The nature of the spiritual life is that we are certain in our uncertainty. Certainty is the mark of the common sense life. Gracious uncertainty is the mark of the spiritual life. To be certain of God means that we are uncertain in all our ways, not knowing what tomorrow may bring. This is generally expressed with a sigh of sadness, but it should be an expression of breathless expectation. We are uncertain of the next step, but we are certain of God. When we become simply a promoter or a defender of a particular belief, something within us dies. That is not believing God. It is only believing our belief about Him. Jesus said, unless you become as little children— The spiritual life is the life of a child. We are not uncertain of God, just uncertain of what He is going to do next. If our certainty is only in our beliefs, we develop a sense of self-righteousness, become overly critical, and are limited by the view that our beliefs are complete and settled. But when we have right relationship with God, life is full of spontaneous, joyful uncertainty and expectancy. Jesus said, believe also in me, not believe certain things about me. Leave everything to him and it will be gloriously and graciously uncertain how he will come in, but you can be certain that he will come. Remain faithful to him. A question that I get 
all the time that I've even asked myself in this process is how do I deal with a fear that if I really go down this road, I might lose my faith altogether? And I go back to this gracious uncertainty. Leave everything to God. Put all my cards on the table and trust that it will be gloriously and graciously uncertain how it's all going to work out, but certain that if God is real, then God will and can show up for me. It may not be in my timeline. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. It may not even be in five years, but I can be graciously uncertain. The more I've stepped into doubt and uncertainty, the more I found comfort and solace in all these thinkers around me who have been walking this path for years. It's like they were right under my nose, the Madeline Ingalls, the Oswald Chambers, who I judged the Oswald Chambers because, ugh, this conservative utmost for his highest. I'm like, no, it's right there. He's saying, step into uncertainty. They were right under my nose, but I couldn't see it. But now that I see them, I can't unsee them. And I wonder if this is what it means to be surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, to be surrounded not by those with perfect theology or the perfect beliefs, but messy and imperfect, doubt-filled and uncertain folks who believe once or twice a month, and they're out there cheering you on to keep moving one breath at a time, one step at a time, one day at a time. So let's ask the question again, how then shall I live? How do we walk this out well? How do I explain to family and friends or people from church that, hey, I'm deconstructing my faith or um, I don't really know if I believe any of this stuff anymore. I would say, first, you have nothing to defend. You don't need to defend to anyone or be able to prove to them that you have the right to take this journey. I would say the most healthy thing that we can do is give ourselves and others the permission to be on a journey and the permission to be misunderstood. I know for a fact that I have people in my life that no longer think I'm a Christian, that have put me in the category of backslidden. And you know what? I covet their prayers, you know? And I also do not have to defend my process to them. What you will find is that there are gonna be people on this process who are safe to really go into those deep waters with you and others who do not have the capacity or space or you're stepping into stage three, right? Like you're stepping into the mysticism space, that full body yada, that full body knowing of the mystery of God. Someone who is in the literal still, who is like, oh, well, to be a Christian means to have a quiet time this way and you have to go to church on Sunday and you have to believe this and you can't believe that. If someone is in that literal space, it will literally not make any sense to them why and how you could really love Jesus and ask really hard questions or be doubting scripture or all of those things. So how do you explain to family, friends, and people from church? I would say, let go of your need to have their approval. That's been one of my biggest breakthroughs is realizing, oh my gosh, I've been more afraid of losing the approval of certain family members, friends that I respect and leaders and mentors and pastors from church, as opposed to going on the journey that Jesus and God and spirit is inviting me to go on to. You can simply say, hey, I'm I'm moving through some really tough stuff in my faith right now. And 
it's felt really disorienting, um, but I'm committed to the process. I'm committed to the process. And if you want to be on that journey with me and that feels like safe, I would be happy to invite you into more of those details. But for now, like this is just where I'm at. And it might feel scary and threatening because when you are in that stage one and stage two and you start asking questions, it upsets the apple cart. So remember, you don't have to defend where you are or not. And then I get this question a lot. Is it normal as you deconstruct to not want to go to church? I feel both shame and relief for not going. One of you sent to me last week. Richard Rohr said, the church is both my greatest intellectual and moral problem and my most consoling home. It is absolutely fine and safe for you to need to have a break and space from church. I really understand that feeling. Of, I feel like shame and also relief. A year ago, my therapist, who is an incredible person of faith, who loves God, loves Jesus, loves the Bible, told me outright, you might need to actually take a break from church because the church doesn't seem to be a safe space for you to unpack what you're going through right now. And so... It's completely normal to need a break. It's completely normal to have some space from the very thing that you're struggling with. Give yourself that space. And also remember that church is not about a building. Church as we see it in the scriptures are people meeting together, doing life together, eating together, taking care of one another's needs, believing for one another when the other doesn't have enough to believe it for themselves. It's talking about God together. So you and I right now, like we're kind of having church or maybe you get with a couple of friends and have meaningful conversation over a beautiful dinner. That's church. Maybe you go on a walk with your friend in nature and you listen to music that lights up your soul. That's church. Give yourself the permission to think outside of the box. And in all of this, I encourage you to invite safe people with you in the process. When I started going through this, um, little did I know one of my very best friends had been through this process, not only with herself years and years ago, and she really couldn't invite me into that space because she knew I couldn't handle it. And she sent me this voice memo about this picture that she got for a friend of hers about the deconstruction process. So I'm going to play that for you now. Okay, so the image that I had for her was that, like, her faith was this, like, wooden, big wooden boat that she was, like, or ship that she was, like, traveling through the ocean. And it was, like, what kept her safe and what helped her navigate everything. And then when she deconstructed, it, like, all blew apart and it felt like she was in the ocean kind of grasping for like different parts of the boat and trying to figure out like this thing that was supposed to keep her safe, like didn't hold up. And the picture that I had for her was that God's not the boat, that he's the ocean. And he's just like a lot bigger and harder to contain. And that all of it was kind of God, which is more wild and uncontrollable and, you know, feels less safe, but was still good. So that's the image that I had for her. Isn't it beautiful when we invite people into our story? 
that picture of, man, God is this boat, this safe harbor, and then the boat explodes and you feel like, ah, like what pieces of the wood can I still hold on to? And yet God's like, no, I'm actually not the boat. I'm the entire ocean. I cannot be tamed. It reminds me of the quote in Narnia about Aslan. Like Aslan is a, is a, is a good Aslan, but he is not safe. He is not tame. My therapist this past year shared with me a greeting card that he got years and years ago, and he's he memorized it. And he told me one day when I was neck deep and I don't really even know what to do with this deconstruction, he read me this poem from this greeting card from Walmart. And it said, when all the guilty tears you cried last night have dried up in the light of day, when all the hallelujahs fade away, when all the things you thought you ought to feel to make you real didn't, don't give up. A great fish doesn't live at the surface for very long, neither does a great God. To wrap things up here and to wrap up this series, I leave you with this. One, deconstruction is constructive. It does not have to mean destruction. Two, deconstruction is having the courage to be willing to do your own damn work. Don't take my word for it. Don't take your pastor's word for it. Don't take Chesterton's word for it. Be willing to do the seeking of God and the deep things of life on your own. Number three, deconstruction won't last forever. However, you have the opportunity to grow and evolve in every area of your life. Yes, even your faith too, from now until your last breath. The invitation to grow and evolve is on the table for you at any point. Number four, remember there's a massive difference between Jesus, the church, and Christianity. Number five, you can dismantle your faith and come out on the other side. Deconstruction's inevitable end is not a complete loss of faith. Quite the opposite, I would argue. Number six, we all have a theological house. The whole thing may not need to be burned down. You might have some rooms that do need to be burned down. Other rooms might need slight renovations. Maybe the bathroom needs a full overhaul. Maybe you really like your kitchen though and you don't wanna change anything about it. Our theological house is a framework and some of it needs to probably be moved, shifted, renovated. But what happens when we first enter that crisis is we feel like it all has to come down. Remember, it's a house. It doesn't all need to come down. Some rooms can be renovated. Next, number seven, there are different stages of faith. As Zahn talks about, and when everything is on fire, literal, analytical, and mystical. We need all of them. They all build on one another. Can you express gratitude for each step along the way? And can you allow the reality of these stages to evoke compassion for yourself and others around you? Because we are all on a journey. Number eight, faith isn't a linear path to get to a destination of black and white bullet point beliefs. It is a quest. Your unbelief is just as important as your belief. Your no just as valid as your yes. Number nine, your church, your family, your friends, even you may judge your process, but Jesus has space for you. 10, finally be gracious and patient with yourself. We're all just humans after all, and being human is hard. You may be in this space for a lot longer than feels comfortable. Stay with it. Stay with it, one foot in front of the other. 
what I've come to experience in all of this is that when I move towards the thing that might unravel the whole thing, that's where I meet God, Jesus, Spirit. They're closer than I ever anticipate and so very unthreatened to be on the journey with us each step of the way. Or like Brian McLaren says, God is always bigger than our biggest box. Okay, some resources I have for you moving forward. I have three books for you this time. Number one, After Evangelicalism by David Gushy. It's a little more academic and heady, but really good. Number two, Everything is Spiritual by Rob Bell. So if if after evangelicalism is like a heady, like this is everything is spiritual, it's very heart, very poetic. Number three, The Bible Tells Me So by Peter Enns. Those are three really powerful books that I am moving through, have read, am reading. And here's the thing, I don't agree with everything in every single book or resource that I give you. All of it is just an experience for you to tap in, read, see what resonates, see what doesn't resonate, but to be a part of that growth process with you. And then finally, a few reflection questions from this episode. What has your relationship to doubt been over your faith journey? Have you resented it? Have you embraced it? Has it felt threatening to you? Number two, what would it look like for you to replace certainty to faith? Instead of requiring certainty as a pillar of your faith, what if uncertainty became a pillar of your faith? Number three, did anything resonate with you in the ocean and boat metaphor? If so, what? Now, moving forward, I would love to continue this conversation with you. And one of the things that I am asked a lot is, okay, so how do I experience God in the midst of deconstruction? What do I do when the Bible feels triggering or I'm not going to church or I can no longer do a quiet time like before? I would love to create more content and more episodes for you on like, what is it to experience God outside of a quote unquote quiet time or outside of a Sunday service or outside of reading your Bible? Are there ways to stay connected to God, Jesus, Spirit in a season where those things feel really unhelpful? And to that, I say, yes, there are many things you can do. There are many things you can experience. There are many spiritual disciplines that have been practiced by people for hundreds and thousands of years that I would love to share with you. If that sounds interesting to you, DM me on Instagram, The Refined Woman, or email social at therefinedwoman.com and let us know that you would like that content. All right, until next time. 